0: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. I want to thank everybody for coming uh, in braving the cold. I was out a little earlier, so I certainly, uh, it's quite windy. Uh, I am Mark Calabria, our Director of Financial Regulation Studies here at Cato. I'm going to be uh, moderating our second panel, but I wanted to give you a quick uh, overview of what our format is going to be uh, and then turn it over to Eli. And I also want to thank and acknowledge the Heartland Institute for doing this jointly with us here at Cato. Uh, we're going to have an hour panel first on insurance, and then we're going to have an hour panel secondly on banking. And after that, we will have a reception where we'll all get to talk about what we just heard. Uh, so with that, I want to turn it over to Eli, who will give introductions for the first panel. Thank you very
1: much, Mark, and on behalf of the Heartland Institute, I would also like to welcome you and thank the Cato Institute and Mark for providing the space. I'm Eli Lehrer, a senior fellow at the Heartland Institute and the director of Heartland's Center on Finance, Insurance, and Real Estate. FIRE as we call it internally, has nine staff working around the United States. That provide an important independent free market voice on, insur- on a variety of issues and most importantly insurance. Before we begin this panel I'd like to provide a bit of background about the situation we've been seeing insur- in insurance, what has happened nationally and what may happen. This Congress that's wrapping up that's currently in the lame duck session is most notable for what did not happen. The House did not pass legislation as it did in 2007 that would have created a national backstop for insurance or added wind insurance to the National Flood Insurance Program. The National Flood Insurance Program itself remained unreauthorized and largely unreformed, although the House did pass a very modest reform bill. Optional federal charter for property and casualty insurance remained largely on the sidelines. AIJ, Once the largest insurance company in the world, now by some measures the largest recipient of bailout aid, remained in a sort of stasis. The list of what did happen this past Congress is much shorter. The Dodd-Frank bill created a first-ever federal office to deal with insurance. And a broad, sometimes vaguely defined structure has the potential, although not the certainty, of coming to involve many of the firms that now sell insurance. In this context, I'd like to ask the panelists here and challenge all of them and all of you with a simple question. What does the next Congress hold, what has happened, and what will happen? I've assembled what I think is an excellent panel of people to discuss this. I'd like to introduce our first speaker, Dr. Bob Detlefson of the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies. Dr. Bob, as many people call call him, is likely the best-known and most respected insurance researchers around, either inside or outside of the insurance industry. He's currently the Vice President of Public Policy at the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies, NAMIC. In Indianapolis-based property and casualty trade association that represents over 1,400 property and casualty insurance companies. He currently serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Insurance Regulation and has testified for just about every regulatory body in the world. God help him. And it's my, and published just about every important journal and every place that stuff about insurance that's interesting and is published. It's my pleasure and my honor to introduce him and hand over the microphone to him. Dr. Bob?
2: Uh,
3: thank you, Eli, for that um, extraordinarily flattering introduction. Uh, I'm delighted to be here, and uh, again, I want to thank the uh, Heartland Institute and the um, and Cato for uh, sponsoring this forum today. I think uh, we're here to discuss um, some pretty important issues. And um, as Eli uh, indicated, we're here mainly to talk about what the new Congress has in store for legislation pertaining to the banking and insurance industries. But I want to begin by suggesting that the real action, I think, right now, certainly, and really continuing uh, in all likelihood throughout most of 2011 will be not in the Congress, not in the legislative branch, so much as in the executive branch. And in particular, what I'm referring to here is the regulatory bureaucracy. Um, There are a half a dozen or more agencies in the federal government that uh, have been given responsibility for implementing various provisions of the Dodd-Frank Act um, that, as you all know, was passed uh, uh, this past year. And some of those provisions have uh, directly to do with the business of insurance, um, some of them indirectly uh, with insurance insofar as they concern financial services products and financial service, the financial services regu- uh, industry uh, more generally. But um, as we all know, I think every time Congress passes a major piece of omnibus legislation, and it falls to federal agencies to interpret the various provisions of the bill and decide how those provisions are going to be uh, implemented and enforced. Um, We are confronted with a situation in which the federal bureaucracy, um, more often than not, will use uh, these statutory mandates as as a platform uh, from which to expand and increase the scope of their own authority, um, the size of their budgets, Um, and in the case of agencies that are newly created for the first time, and we have a couple of uh, of of those um, resulting from the Dodd-Frank Act as well, uh, they will, um, one can be sure, uh, looking for, uh, they will be looking for opportunities to, to interpret the various provisions of Dodd-Frank to um, maximize the amount of authority that they have um, under this legislation. Now, a lot of what the future holds for insurance regulation will depend, at least in the short term, on what kinds of decisions these federal agencies make. Um, There is, for example, in regard to insurance... Um, an entity uh, that is called the Financial Stability Oversight Council. Um, one of its responsibilities is to determine which financial institutions, including non-bank institutions, are systemically significant. Um, this is a term that uh, you know, I think many of us became familiar with following the financial crisis last year. Um, it refers to those institutions that are thought by regulators and others to be um, important to the uh, financial system in a way that um, could cause them to spread uh, a contagion uh, effect if they were to become financially uh, impaired uh, or insolvent uh, in ways that could harm other financial institutions and potentially create uh, a systemic crisis. One of the things that this Financial uh, Stability Oversight Council will be uh, trying to figure out is whether There are large insurance companies that ought to be considered systemically significant in this sense. And um, if it decides that there are such companies, um, they would be subject to federal regulation under the authority of the systemic uh, risk uh, oversight um, authority that uh, the FSOC is entrusted with. Um, This could have, I think, major market-distorting effects if – insurance companies are designated as systemically significant. Um, and we can talk about those a little bit more uh, as we get into the Q&A. Um, let me give you another example of a provision of the Dodd-Frank bill that, uh, um, that a new agency, um, one that is charged specifically with responsibility for the insurance industry, the federal insurance office, as it's called, um, will be uh, trying to uh, decide how, how this p- provision should be implemented. Um, the, fi- the, the, the Federal Insurance Office uh, was created under Dodd-Frank um, and in a way that does not entrust it with any direct regulatory authority over the insurance uh, industry. Insurance will continue to be regulated at the state level, but it does have responsibility for monitoring uh, uh, various aspects of the insurance industry and issuing reports. One of the things that uh, Dodd-Frank, the Dodd-Frank Act um, uh, charges the Federal Insurance Office with doing is to, quote, monitor the extent to which traditionally underserved communities and consumers, minorities, and low and moderate income persons have access to affordable insurance products regarding all lines of insurance except health insurance. Now, if you unpack that language, I think it raises um, a number of interesting questions. Um, what will the federal, office, the federal insurance office consider to be a traditionally underserved community when it comes to uh, personal lines uh, insurance products like auto insurance and homeowner's insurance? What constitutes access in this context? And what is an affordable insurance product? Um, especially when you think of something like a homeowner's policy or an auto insurance policy. Um, At the very least, uh, one would think that in order to carry out this function of monitoring this particular phenomenon, um, the Federal Insurance Office would need to have data. They'll need to have information um, about the extent to which the communities that it considers to be underserved have, quote, access to, quote, affordable insurance products. Um, How will they get that information? Right now, insurance companies, for their part, uh, don't gather information with respect to the race, ethnicity, or income status of their customers or applicants for coverage. Um, Well, we know from experience that when the banking industry was faced with a similar kind of uh, monitoring uh, uh, by the federal government back in the 1970s, um, it led to the passage of something called the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act, which and required uh, mortgage lenders to start collecting, gathering that kind of information and reporting it to the federal government, demographic information about um, the characteristics of uh, their customers and applicants for mortgage loans. Um, and that data, that information, eventually served as the basis for the Community Reinvestment Act, which many people would argue um, has uh, ill-served the financial services industry and consumers generally, and may even have played a role in the subprime uh, mortgage crisis that played out over the course of the last couple of years. Many people, not, I shouldn't say many people, but certainly some consumer advocates, self styled consumer advocates, and some uh, regulators and legislators uh, have for years been advocating that the Community Reinvestment Act, that now applies just to banks, uh, be applied to. Uh, other financial institutions as well, other sectors of the financial services industry, including insurance. Perhaps this language that is in the Dodd-Frank Act, which the newly created Federal Insurance Office is tasked with carrying out, will serve as a pretext for building the case for a Community Reinvestment Act type of um, requirement to be applied uh, to property casualty insurers. One doesn't know at this point And um, these are the kinds of things, though, that um, we are watching very closely, uh, the association um, that I work for and our member companies as well. Um, And it doesn't, as I said earlier, really involve the Congress very much, at least not at this stage. Um, These are questions that are playing out within this rulemaking process that's taking place within the executive branch. Now, turning to Congress, um, one of the questions that I think uh, Eli posed on the um, description of this forum um, in, um, uh, in the invitation that was sent out uh, electronically was, will Dodd-Frank, uh, will the Dodd-Frank Act be repealed? I think there's very little chance of that. So another question then is, well, under the new Congress, are we likely to get more regulation or freer markets? Um, I think that one ought not to assume that just because the Republicans scored major gains, in both the House and the Senate, particularly the House, having retaken control of the House, that that necessarily creates the conditions for a more sort of free market uh, friendly environment for (coughs) insurance. Um, Because I think that one of the things that, one of the consequences of the debate that took place that led eventually to the passage of the health care reform bill, the Patient Protection and uh, Affordable Care Act, was that um, there was a, um, an, an enormous amount of misinformation and misconceptions that were um, spread about regarding the nature of the insurance enterprise that, I think, uh, could have a spillover effects for the way people understand how the property casualty insurance industry works. I think that in health insurance, when you have... Um, People talking about how a basic underwriting criteria like a pre existing medical condition for an insurance company, a health insurer, to take that into consideration in setting someone's premium uh, is a form of unfair discrimination. That notion flies in the face of everything we know about the fundamental tenets of insurance risk pooling and uh, risk transfer. Um, so, concepts like adverse selection and moral hazard that insurers are very familiar with. I suspect are even less familiar to uh, the um, average uh, policymaker in Washington, not to mention the public, uh, in the aftermath of this very poisonous public discourse that we had leading up to the health care reform bill. And I worry about the effects that that will have um, on the future of how Congress might uh, treat the property casualty industry. Thank you.
1: We'll take questions for all panelists together uh, after, after they've presented. Our next speaker will be Lars Powell. Lars is a rare academic who has an actual influence on the area that he studies. He's an associate professor at, who holds the Whitbeck Buyer Chair of Insurance and Financial Services at the University of Arkansas Little Rock. Before pursuing an academic career, He actually practiced what he now preached and worked in a variety of positions in the insurance industry, including being an insurance agent and medical malpractice claims adjuster. His research includes topics like insurer capitalization and the effects of regulation on insurance markets. He's a rare academic whose work I've actually seen cited in actual legislative. Things. so he's really somebody who makes a difference with his academic work. He's been published in just about every journal that publishes this kind of stuff, and it's my pleasure and honor to welcome him to the podium. Lars.
4: Thank you, Eli. Uh, it's nice to be introduced as, as an academic and have that not be a pejorative term. Um, <laughs> At least I don't think that it was that time. Uh, I, I don't have a bow tie nor a, a laser pointer today, so it's important to uh, make it clear this way that I'm, I'm an academic. Uh, most of the time, I'm I'm up in front of folks like this. They're uh, here to learn and and paying for the privilege. It's not always how they act, but so but what we're talking about today is is um, this Dodd Frank bill, and and more importantly, what what might change about it from uh, the, the recent election, and um, the first thing that strikes me about Dodd Frank is that it is an additional layer of regulation being imposed on an industry that is both highly competitive and already highly regulated at the state level. That uh, insurance regulation is is um, quite thorough in as it's as it's um, carried out today and. Uh, it's it's hard to imagine where an additional layer wouldn't be duplicative. <clears throat> so, uh, the the important question becomes, what what is it they're doing? Are they doing something different or new or better or what? What what is uh, what does this bill do? And uh, I know that Bob gave you some of this. Um, it's supposed to monitor and report to Congress annually, um, regulate some international transactions, identify regulatory gaps and systemic risk. Monitor underserved communities for access and oversee the federal terrorism um, plan terrorism insurance plan uh, two of those or at least two of those goals provide it with subpoena power, which is is always a, a bit of a, a risky proposition, um, not that they would uncover something important but that they would dig so deeply that it 's very expensive well one thing if, if you 've ever uh, I know I, I use these data in my research often, and, and once or twice I've been asked to help uh, an insurance company figure out what was being asked for. In the big uh, yellow, blue, or, or um, orange book that they have to fill out each year for their state regulator, which is then sent to the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, that we're already looking at 200-and-some pages of very detailed reporting, some very granular data that that uh, is... Well, it's very good for a researcher, but it's very—it's um, quite a burden for a company to produce this. So, uh, giving this subpoena power could increase that burden, and of course, the cost of this always falls on consumers. There's nowhere else that insurance companies get their money other than from premiums. So, uh, what's important out of this? What uh, what might be different about this uh, because of the election? Um, what effects might it have? Well, the, the first thing about what, what is at least a little bit odd to me, um, other than the, the subpoena powers causing some concern, that, number one, insurance is not by its nature a systemically risky uh, business, that um, the nature of the cash flows aren't like what you see in banking where there might be a, a run on a bank where people want to decide to withdraw their money, that their deposits. It's uh, insurance doesn't pay out unless there is some exogenous loss, some uh, thing that happens that you don't really decide on. So while you can have catastrophic losses, you can't have systemic losses in insurance. And uh, obvious question that that someone is is you know, welcome to ask when we have questions about AIG. Well, it wasn't the insurance part of AIG that that found itself in a systemic risk. And um, so because. Uh, the regulation at the state level is all, is already complete that are relatively complete there 's uh, solvency regulation and its a solvency guarantee provided to consumers at the state level. Uh, market conduct is closely scrutinized all these things uh, already go on. Um, it seems to me like insurance is kind of a, a, a square peg that 's being driven into a round hole. Uh, wanting to, you know, there's there's been a problem and, and there's an opportunity to make some changes. So, hey, let's make changes any way we can, and then we'll decide later if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, insurance companies are financial services firms, and and uh, so uh, perhaps to the, the, those unfamiliar with the insurance mechanism, which is what I primarily focus on in in any of my work. Uh, there's uh, the, the reason for adding insurance companies to this is more political than uh, practical in its motives <clears throat> so what will the elec- what effect will the election have? There has been a, a bit of a a shift in in the power structure, and perhaps this will uh, throw a little bit of salt on the slippery slope toward federal regulation. Uh, Here there are rumors about a a, a um, optional federal charter coming back. Next year, and, and it seems like the federal government would would like to have uh, more control over the insurance industry than, than it has. The important thing is what shape will that take? Um, another common observance in insurance regulation that we see at the state level is that the actual wording of a bill or the the regulation itself, the statute is It can be interpreted very differently depending on who is interpreting it. So, how the Federal Insurance Office is staffed, and, and if the, uh, if at least a partial power shift in in the House has any effect on that, perhaps the uh, will we have freer markets for from insurance? Well, the effect of uh, the Dodd Frank bill might be shifted somewhat that way because again, you have to interpret any of these things before. You, you apply them. That's all I have. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Lars, for a very interesting presentation. I'd like to now introduce our next speaker, Larry Morell. Larry is a former regulator, a reformed regulator, perhaps, who, as a regulator, was willing to challenge the prevailing wisdom, shake things up, and change the way things were done. Previously, he served under Mayor Anthony Williams as the Commissioner of Insurance, Securities, and Banking, one of the few integrated financial services commissioners in the country. And in that job, he did a fantastic job, transforming this city into a pretty good place to do a lot of those businesses. He's worked in various parts of insurance for over 25 years, and currently as a partner at Wiley-Rhine, works on a long catalog of issues relating to just about every part of the insurance business, ranging from national catastrophe insurance to McCarran-Ferguson reform and collateralization requirements for non-U.S. insurers. It's my pleasure to introduce him. Larry?
5: Thank you very much, Eli. particularly appreciate your saying that I tried to shake things up. That's that's. Uh, I hope to continue to be able to do that. The first thing that I think is um, important to understand is that there's less change in Dodd-Frank than meets the eye, at least as far as insurance is concerned. There's really very little in there that changes. Insurance, as you know, is regulated at the state level. True, they created a federal insurance office in that bill, but let me read you some language from the Dodd-Frank bill. I actually, I didn't bring the whole thing because it was too heavy, but I brought the chapter dealing with insurance. Nothing in this law shall be construed to establish or provide the office of the Department of the Treasury with general supervisory or regulatory authority over the business of insurance. That's pretty clear. Nothing in this section shall preempt any state insurance measure that governs any insurance, insurer's rates, premiums, underwriting, or sales practices, or that uh, deals with uh, state coverage requirements for insurance, or governs the capital or solvency of any insurer. Pretty, pretty clear that uh, Dodd-Frank makes very little change currently in the way in which insurance is regulated. The Federal Insurance Office in my view is a toothless tiger, the way it's been set up. It's to be headed by a civil servant, that is, this is not a person appointed either by the President or by the Secretary of the Treasury. It has no budget yet and no staff. It has a mandate to issue a report in 18 months from the time the bill became law as to how insurance should be reformed, insurance regulations should be reformed. Six months have already passed, and there's still nobody over there. There hasn't been a a federal insurance uh, uh, official appointed yet. Congress basically kicked the can down the road. All that the federal insurance office has to do except in the area of international insurance, which I'll mention in a second. But all that the federal insurance office has to do is issue a report suggesting ways in which insurance reform could be done. And then Congress will decide if it wants to do any. Well, Congress has been trying to decide if it wants to do any for a long time. And I think even after that report is issued, the chances of anything happening very quickly are, are, uh, are small. In the international area, the new financial insurance office has some authority. It has the authority to preempt state insurance regulation when the state insurance regulation would interfere with a federal treaty obligation. There really aren't any at this point. There might be some in the future. But that's not a very big area of responsibility. And even that is shared with the US trade representative and with the state regulators. Dodd-Frank also created the Financial Stability Oversight Council. And that uh, body, recognizing that insurance is one of the financial service uh, uh, businesses, has a seat reserved for somebody with experience and expertise in the insurance industry. That seat has not been filled. The FSOC has met now I think at least twice, maybe three times, It's already making policy and there is nobody there representing the insurance industry except a non-voting representative from the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. Well, what does that mean? Why is there nobody there representing the insurance industry? It means either one of two things. It means either that the federal government doesn't uh, care about state regulation, it's going to regulate insurance itself. or and this is much more likely, the federal government really isn't interested in regulating insurance and is not likely to do it. Are any insurance companies too big to fail? That was an issue that was raised already today. And I think the answer is probably no. Um, as um, as Lars said, that it's a different kind of industry. It's not likely to be uh, financially uh, that uh, that uh, important. There's always the example of AIG, and there's a real question as to whether AIG really is an insurance company. The insurance operations of AIG are all just fine. It got into trouble for some risky investment strategy that really has nothing to do with insurance. So what did the elections do? Well, first of all, the elections didn't do a heck of a lot. Um, yes, there were gains made in the House and Senate, and the, the House is now in Republican hands. But the Senate remains Democratic, and President Obama is still in office. Moreover, much of the reform, regulatory reform that's in Dodd-Frank was Republican in origin, at least in regard to insurance or bipartisan. Um, What I'm thinking about is the only part of Dodd-Frank that relates to insurance that I think is significant, and that is the inclusion of the non-admitted and reinsurance portion. Uh, The non-admitted and reinsurance law that was passed twice by the House and never before taken up by the Senate. It's passed unanimously by the House. Um, And I'll talk a little bit more um, about what the significance of that is in a second. I think there is zero chance that Dodd-Frank will be repealed and only very slight chance that it'll be modified. Uh, Congress does not have much appetite for dealing with problems of financial regulation um, and it's done its bit, and it's not likely to do it. Visit the issue for many years to come. So the, 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 the uh, attention turns to the regulatory arena, as as uh, Bob mentioned early, earlier. I've I've called this in my outline. The future lies ahead. Um, does it mean that nothing has changed? That there is no, uh, nothing that is going to change in the future? Well, there is something going on there. There is the Federal Insurance Office, which has a mandate to produce a document. And that document could, in the future, some years down the road, begin to change the relationship between the federal government and the states. More importantly, though, the non-admitted and reinsurance provisions of the Dodd-Frank law have a startling change in the way in which insurance is regulated, because what it does for the first time is it says that there will be one state regulator for certain kinds of insurance, specifically non-admitted and reinsurance, and the federal government will preempt other states from interfering with that regulation. That's very significant in my view, the real problem with insurance regulation has always been that a national company is subject to 51, I always say 51 because I was a D.C. commissioner, 51 different regulators, and they all have different ideas. What this non-admitted law, uh, this uh, non-admitted provision say is that when it comes to surplus lines insurance, you have one regulator, and that's the regulator of the uh, jurisdiction where your uh, uh, companies are doing business. Now, there's always an exception to any rule. The exception to the rule that nothing happened was health insurance. A lot happened in health insurance. If, if, if health insurance is insurance, I, I happen to think that mostly it's not. But there was a lot of change brought about in PPACA, and uh, much of that will be up to the regulations in the future, and I think Congress will do something about that. But it'll be around the, the, the edges, because even that was a compromise. Uh, if you notice... Uh, We still have a private insurance system in this country. There's no uh, federal single-payer. There are a lot of issues, a lot of things to be decided, but there hasn't been that much that changed. I want to deal with one other issue Eli mentioned at the beginning, and that is catastrophic insurance. This is an area that begs and calls for some attention. Uh, Katrina was a disaster from an insurance point of view. There is no excuse for having a situation where somebody comes back and his house is gone, and he has to prove whether it was blown away or, or washed away, otherwise he can't collect on his insurance. And yet, that's the system we have, and there is nothing that is likely to change it. The national, unless Congress acts, the national flood insurance program was uh, has been extended for a year. It's due to expire again in September. But all of the reform issues, uh, reform provisions that were in the House passed act uh, were not taken up by the senate and the reason is because nobody can figure out what to do but unless congress deals with that uh, sometime in the near future comes the next natural disaster we're going to be right back where we were after katrina thank you
6: thank you
1: Thank you, sir. Thank you very much, Larry. Finally, we will turn to Steve Posiesk. Steve is an economist who has made it his profession to speak for consumers. For over 25 years, Steve has been involved with consumer public policy research. Currently, he is the chief economist of the American Consumer Institute. He has participated as a consumer advocacy representative for organizations dealing with everything from insurance to utilities regulation. He's written reports for the Small Business Administration's Office of Advocacy, testified before Congress, and appeared in a number of important media outlets and some others. It's my pleasure to introduce him. Steve? Steve?
7: Yeah, I'm Steve Posiosk. Um, I'm with the American Consumer Institute. Um, I have a few slides I'm just going to go through. I think it will make it uh, um, a little bit more instructive. Uh, The American Consumer Institute is a 501c3 educational research institute, essentially a think tank focused on uh, consumer research. Uh, What I'm going to talk about today in reference to um, uh, Dodd-Frank is uh, just a particular issue, and, and it has been touched on a little bit here, and I just want to focus a little bit more on it. Uh, but in, in general, uh, what we see from uh, Dodd-Frank is, uh, in the short term, uh, very modest effects. But I think there's a possibility for uh, longer term uh, that there may be a possibility for uh, large opportunities or large risks, and um, and that's really what I want to talk about. Uh, what I see is one of the major <clears throat> problems in general in in uh, uh, insurance, uh, particularly in, in property insurance, but insurance in general, uh, in the U.S. is uh, in many uh, cases where regulators have come in, solvency regulation is the right purpose for for insurance. But when we start getting into price regulation, we start to create ill effects elsewhere in the economy uh, that have um, uh, implications uh, later on down the road on 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 the service innovation and even consumer prices, uh, and so you know let me let me just go ahead and let's let's see what we can uh, uh get to on this uh just in in a very general um, sense uh, the, these are some of the various elements of the uh reform that's taken place um for example uh we we just heard a little bit about the uh, non-admitted and uh there's also uh, reinsurance essentially what what those did is they uh provided uh, greater access to uh, uh to the market for uh, non-admitted insurers um and sort of um uh, as well as uh, single-state regulation financial uh, reporting. Uh, so really what that did, in, in my view, is it encouraged competition. And when you have more competition, the tendency is to have uh, more favorable prices and services to consumers. So that's a very positive thing. Um, and, and there really isn't much else to talk about. There, you know, the, these were already discussed by Bob and others uh, in terms of the uh, Financial Stability Oversight Council. Um, and what I'm going to focus a little bit more on uh, today will be uh, uh, some of the elements of the uh, Federal Insurance uh, Office. Um, and again, we, there are various uh, things. to some consumer protection, the data collection, as long as it's not already available, uh, some uh, monitoring of systematic risk, and so on. Uh, what's of interest to me here, and what I wanted to spend a little bit of time on, is are, are these reports to Congress, the feasibility, sort of a cost-benefit analysis of federal regulation. Uh, should there be regulation of certain lines or not? Uh, And the uniformity and modernization um, on life insurance, there was a study a number of years ago that showed that uh, just creating uniform rules across states, sort of interstate regulation, if you will, uh, uh, interstate competition, if you will, uh, that would result in billions of dollars of benefits. Um, And um, in in general, I think uh, encouraging interstate competition will do that. Uh, Competition in general um, creates price competition, it drives down... uh, uh, prices for consumers it creates better services for consumers um, and one example of uh, uh, something that we did a while back is we used um, some numbers coming out of Eli's shop uh, that looked at the uh, the degree of of, of um, uh, uh, regulation and, and, and the cost that that incurred on various states and as you can see here, that excessive costs of of homeowners and automobile insurance. Uh, in some states where there's high regulation, uh, amounted, after we corrected for things such as hurricane uh, exposure and so on, amounted to hundreds of dollars of cost on consumers. So onerous regulation, particularly price regulation, doesn't necessarily result in lower prices. And uh, why is this important? Well, because as I look at, um, as I look at uh, sort of the, uh, the longer-term implications, uh, in particular of the research, Um, Yes, we have uh, the possibility of having, uh, you know, a uh, longer-term uniformity, modernization, and interstate competition. I also see that there's risks that we may continue uh, with with sort of the preservation of the status quo, uh, a duplication now of a big bureaucracy of a federal uh, regulator uh, in the midst of the 51 um, uh, state uh, regulators uh, and, and that I, I see as potentially the biggest risk. And I think Bob centered in on one of the uh, one of the things in particular uh, when he uh, he read, uh, and this is from directly from the bill, uh, that Federal Insurance Office shall have the authority to monitor to the extent traditionally underserved communities and consumers, minorities, and low and moderate income persons have access to affordable insurance products regarding all lines. And the reason why I wanted to mention this again is is there's two words in this that are very typical of of other industries. When you start talking about underserved communities, we're talking about universal service programs, funds in particular. And when you start talking about affordable insurance, then the issue is who decides what's the the right price. And this, I think, going longer term becomes the biggest problem with this. um, Because in general, when you you, uh, ask a bureaucrat or a commissioner or somebody what the right price is, they're not thinking of the market price where uh, P1 determines Q1 on uh, the uh, supply-demand equilibrium. Uh, what they do in, in case of, say, Florida, uh, you'll see a reduction in the price, a forced price, and the result of that is, let me point to it, reduction in price results in a reduction in quantity. So essentially, regulations, regulations uh, resulted in, 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 a, uh, in a shortage for the industry. And so when I'm reading the language, the, this risk that I have identified here, uh, the, the risk that I see is that regulation, the regulators are now going to be asked to fix the problem caused by regulation. And um, let me skip ahead. There's a few other things that I think might be kind of interesting as well. Um, and incidentally, just to finish up, uh, Florida, where you have price regulation, this is the commissioner's statement, uh, identified that companies are now pulling away from catastrophic exposed areas and the residual market's growing. Well, of course, because what you've done is you've artificially set the price. So, so insurance companies have pulled away from the coast, they stop writing uh, policies, uh, and, and they uh, withdraw from the state in some cases. And what that ends up doing is it creates um, a, a, a change in the mix of providers for the industry. For in this case here, what this chart shows in Florida, that the uh, number of foreign firms uh, as opposed to domestic providers declined sharply over about a 15-year period. And that affected the risk uh, associated with these companies. If you look at those companies, the non-domicile, uh, they, tend to hire, have, they tend to have the um, uh, uh, be um, a rated by AM Best, uh, they tend to be a more responsive. They tend to have, while today they have a lower market share, they tend to have a much higher, um, uh, what's the term I need? Uh, relative importance associated with um, a, a surplus. For So, for example, in Florida, you now have these uh, large um, brand name um, uh, providers withdrawing from the market, and they're responsible for more of the surplus. So what price regulation has created then in these cases, what they've created is, ins- is a case for insolvency, which is really the focus of what insurance, should be, insurance sh- regulation should be about. It should be focused on uh, solvency regulation and not price regulation. And I see that this is maybe one of the long-term threats. And so just to, just to summarize here, excuse me, there we are, what I consider to be a a second threat in the language is it reads uh, that um, the office will report on the ability of any potential federal regulation or federal regulators to eliminate or minimize regulatory arbitrage. Well, in some cases, what we've just seen in the case of Florida, we really want interstate competition, and the way those benefits will get to consumers is through some sort of arbitrage, and and the problem is that I see going forward is um, there's a risk that we may, that we're just building in another bureaucracy, and the the the, the bureaucracy um, will sort of maintain a status quo, and and those I think are some of the risks looking forward. So just to wrap up, I think short term, uh, what I see is is very little effects. Uh, on insurance. But longer term, I think it's very important that we watch what comes out of those reports going forward, because there could be some real opportunities as well as risks. I, I appreciate your time. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Steve, for an interesting and informative presentation. We now have time to take a few questions.
8: Bert Bert Ely, banking consultant. Um, Coming back to the issue of uh, the potential for insurance companies to cause systemic risk, my recollection is that more than a few years ago we had a serious problem uh, in the, uh, in the life insurance industry with regard to if I remember correctly single premium annuities uh, mutual benefit life in New Jersey was one company executive life was another that there was essentially a run uh, on these companies and uh, I can't remember whether the, the Federal Reserve actually had to advance any cash uh, to them but at that time so I don't know 15 20 years ago there were some very serious concerns about uh, runs uh, on these uh, companies. I wonder if someone on the panel uh, who has a better recollection of that history than I do could uh, address uh, that issue.
3: Uh, Bob, take a stab. Well, yeah, I'm somewhat familiar with uh, what you're referring to, Bert. Um, I don't recall that there were runs on these uh, life insurance companies um, in the sense that we think of a run on the bank where everybody's going to to the bank to try to pull out uh, uh, money that they have in, in, in depository accounts, that ha- that can't happen in insurance. That said... Especially um, in life insurance, it'd be hard to demand your well, benefit. Yeah, although, I, to, to be fair, I mean, you know, uh, life insurance annuity products are somewhat similar to, um, you know, the kinds of products that... Other kinds of financial institutions well, offer, but I was don't. Was that not
4: about the policyholder loans, though? The when you take out a loan against your cash value in a, in a whole life policy, and they used to have specific guaranteed interest rates, uh, and, and you could have an arbitrage there, and so people wanted to cash them in, and now they've quit that practice. Was maybe on a different issue.
3: But you 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 began Bert by asking about whether this has implications for the idea that insurance companies potentially create systemic risk. And um, I'm mainly uh, concerned in the work that I do with the property casualty sector of the insurance industry. Life insurance, it's hard for me even to – it is different from property casualty insurance, although it's hard for me to even imagine how a life insurance company could create systemic risk. The kind of thing that you're talking about did not endanger other financial institutions um, uh, you know it's, it's we, the, the, this whole idea this whole concept of systemic risk has to do with this notion that if one company goes down uh, um, or one institution goes down its failure has Consequences that sort of ripple through the rest of the financial system and affect uh, other firms as well, and which then uh, are, you know, their failure then adversely affects um, their uh, customers and counterparties and so forth. That didn't happen um, even during the, you know, serious crisis or failure that occurred among some life insurers 15 or 20 years ago. And it's hard for me to imagine, even in theory, how that would play out. Um, under uh, current, present circumstances.
1: I I would add to that. I think what you're saying is absolutely right. I, I think that there is very little chance of a systemic risk from the insurance industry. I do think that the guarantee fund system at the state level which ultimately backs these and would deal with insolvencies does pose a potential systemic risk. It has the potential to assess every insurer that could, in theory, cause cascading insolvencies. It would, be, it would take a lot of failures at once. And it wouldn't really be a failure of the industry, but you could see a regulatory failure, since none of these guarantee funds are pre-funded. And it's not, and that's where I would see the possibility of a failure. But it's not really an industry thing. It's a regulatory thing. David John at Heritage has actually done some interesting work on this exact question. Sir?
6: Yeah, Chia Chen, uh, freelance correspondent, business manager. Although every speaker said the act won't be repaired, but the problem in the future will be lots worse than the the act. Uh, the important thing is the implementation. And the, in the, in the uh, implementation, the first is the regulatory process. And, uh, everybody said lots is subject to in, interpretation. So, and uh, the regular process also will be like a uh, health reform. Regular is uh, very short and be hasty, so lots of people, everybody, always could take the the regular process to the court, and their court case. Sir, sure, I don't mean to interrupt.
1: Do you have a question um, for the panel that you'd like to ask?
6: Yeah, I, okay. I said that uh, you got thinking about the. The later on the the core case for regulatory process is is lots uh, it's lots terrible than than repair the case. Is that right? So uh, I'm not
1: entirely sure. I understand the question. Would it be accurate?
6: Actually, you you should think about the uh, regulatory uh, regulatory process, right?
1: So are, are you asking? To what, to what extent will uh, will the courts play in the regulatory process? The uh,
6: problem is
1: not ending. Okay. Does anybody on the panel wish to address the gentleman's question?
5: I'll take a little shot at it, Eli. I think that, that uh, when it comes to health insurance, the, the regulatory process is going to result in litigation to a major extent. I think that's less likely in Dodd Frank, at least on the insurance side, uh, and, and uh, because because the can has been kicked down the road. And I think the, the issues for Dodd Frank will be when the reports start coming in. Will Congress do anything? They haven't done anything yet,
6: basically. You are in the regular uh,
3: uh, business, you should know about that. Yeah. Just one thing to add to that, Eli. I mean, you mentioned litigation. I mean, there is a there is sort of a familiar pattern that occurs. Uh, it's a piece that that I left out when I was talking about how important the implementation process is at the you know, level of the federal bureaucracy. But often what happens is that you have Congress passing laws with fairly vague language, fairly vague provision provisions that then is left to these federal agencies to decide what this language means. And then very often... Um, once they've decided what it means and they start to uh, enforce their interpretation, either the affected uh, uh, industries, the regulated entities, or sometimes uh, consumer groups will bring lawsuits challenging um, the interpretation of the agency. Um, You see that a lot with environmental uh, regulation, um, worker health and safety laws, and and other um, uh, regulation of that sort. So Conceivably, um, we will see that uh, you know occurring over the over the course of the next several years and beyond, um, with regard to Dodd Frank. I mean, the, the idea that that Dodd Frank is a toothless tiger with respect to insurance—that's true. I think if you look at, for the most part, I quibble a little bit with Larry on this, but if you look at what the you know what 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 the um, the literal uh, mandate that's given to the federal insurance office in the bill is, in, you know, in, in the sense of what's what's committed to paper. But, um, uh, you know, it, 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 again, it remains to be seen how that uh, apparently, that seemingly innocuous and benign uh, legislative language will be interpreted by the agencies that have authority for uh, interpreting it and enforcing it. Ma'am?
2: Ann Canfield, a consultant here in Washington. Um, I noticed that none of the uh, panelists mentioned the monoline insurers and either the mortgage guarantee insurers or the financial guarantee insurers who did play or were involved with the uh, recent not. debacle. And I wondered uh, do you see the financial insurance office getting heavily involved with them? Number one. Secondly, in, um, do you see them looking at the capital requirements that the are re- that are required of of those two industries, uh, particularly since they're lower than uh, the, the, risk, the the risks uh, that the lower than the capital requirements for similar risks that um, other institutions uh, take. And then finally, with regard to insurance generally, on the investment side of the business, uh, the industry has relied heavily on the rating agencies uh, for, you know, making their investments uh, without. Potentially doing as much due diligence. I mean, this is brought widely. You know, this is a problem across the investment community. Is the industry doing something uh, on the investment side to reduce the reliance on the rating agencies?
4: Uh, I would say yes, they are. My understanding is they've replaced um, much of the rating agency input. Uh, the NAIC has has recently um, started developing their own models for that sort of rating, as well as the Securities Valuation Office. That uh, the reliance on um, rating agencies to value investments and, and put them in risk categories has has dropped substantially, and, and I think with the the, the uh, wording in the Dodd Frank bill that that rating agencies will have some liability if if they're wrong, will will make them quickly want to exit a, a large part of that market. Now, f- for the monoline insurers, right in the financial services I or the the um, Financial guarantees, they seem to be dropping in number. Um, Don't know how big of a role they'll play going forward, but it it is uh, a very peculiar market.
5: I have to also uh, point out that there's nothing in the Dodd-Frank bill that permits the Federal Insurance Office to regulate any kind of insurance. In fact, they're prohibited from doing so. Uh, All of the uh, authority... Of the states under the McCarran-Ferguson law are preserved by Dodd-Frank, including the the authority of the states to regulate solvency. So I don't see how. Just to answer the first part of your question, I don't see how the FIO is going to be able to deal with that. I I
4: think it's a solution in search of a problem. And so, should there come a problem that that looks like that they might want to do something about it, would be a, a backdoor to approach it quickly. But
2: no, I realize that the. At the moment, the Financial Insurance Office doesn't have the authority to regulate them, but clearly, uh, the model lines played a very significant role in, in the in the recent uh, past couple of years issues. And so, I just wondered, uh, you know, if you thought that that, that I think your, your comment um, uh, earlier at the first panelist was saying that this will be, you know, the Campbell's nose under the tent or potential federal rec- federal regulation. And also I was curious as to do you see the office looking at capital differences for same kinds of risk across industries? I mean, trying to level the playing field on capital. All right.
1: Uh, we'll take one last question. Sir? Sir?
9: Bill Himmler, American Financial Services Association. I'm curious as to whether or not you view the prohibition on regulating insurance products would be extended to consumer credit products, and that prohibition would, would also extend to the, uh, uh, the Consumer Protection Bureau.
5: I think the answer is nothing has changed. Um, consumer credit, to the extent that it's considered insurance, is regulated by the states. I know that that's not always clear. Um, and that uh, it's an issue that is fought over. But I think that what Dodd-Frank says very clearly is that responsibility for regulating insurance, however that's defined, remains with the states. All right.
1: Uh, Thank you very much to our panel, and thank you to the audience. I'll now turn it over to Mark and his panel. Thank you so much.
0: Moving on to our second panel. Uh, Our second panel is going to offer an overview of what we might actually see in terms of banking legislation uh, in the 112th Congress. Uh, We only have about an hour, and I believe most of our panelists, all of our panelists, are probably known to most of you, so I'm only going to give a very brief introduction. Uh, Our first panelist is going to be Mark Osterley. Mark currently serves as the chief counsel to minority on the Senate Banking Committee. In that capacity, Mark advises ranking member Richard Shelby on all policy and procedural issues before the committee. Prior to Senator Shelby's ascension to first chairmanship uh, and now ranking member of the Banking Committee, Mark also spent a number of years as Senator Shelby's banking counsel. Uh, I don't think it would be any exaggeration to say that every piece of banking legislation that has passed Congress in the last decade has been touched one way or another by Mark. Uh, we'll debate whether for the better. Uh, Our second panelist uh, is Joy Sheffield. Joy is currently the founder of Sheffield Brothers, a government relations and corporate consulting firm. Prior to founding Shefford Brothers in 2006, Joy served as banking counsel to Senator Tim Johnson as well as staff director for the Financial Institutions Subcommittee of the Senate Banking Committee. Joy's banking experience is not limited to Capitol Hill. She has served as legislative counsel for the Independent Community Bankers of America. She also served as a senior enforcement attorney at the Office of the Control of the Currency, which is the primary regulator for national banks. Uh, and she's actually worked in a bank, having begun her career with Nations Bank, now Bank of America, where she served as a regional Regulatory Policy Officer. Uh, our final panelist will be Bert Ely. In addition to being an adjunct scholar here at Cato, uh, Bert is also president of Ely & Company, a financial consulting firm. Mark, I turn it over to you.
9: Thank you, Mark. Appreciate the introduction. Uh, first and foremost, as with all these kind of events, I have to note that uh, all my comments are mine alone and they're entirely off the record. Um, but looking forward to next year, which is never easy to do and something I... Uh, usually always caveat by saying there's uh, what we think we're going to do and what we always end up doing and uh the surprises quite often take up as much as 50 percent of the time Uh, uh over the last 10 years there's always been something it seems that comes up that we never saw coming uh and i assume next year will continue to be the same but um first and foremost and this sounds kind of basic and boring but uh both uh, Chairman Johnson and Ranking Member Shelby have to uh, get fellow committee members. We have to figure out who exactly is going to be on the committee. You can't really have a, a clear agenda until you know who your members are and what their interests are. Um, but that said, uh, there are some requirements on the part of the administration to produce some ideas for us with respect to GSE uh, regulation or GSE reform. So I I think at the outset, we'll have something come our way, which hopefully will stimulate a uh, pretty thorough process where we'll look at the ins and outs of uh, uh, how we got to where we are with respect to the current conditions of the the GSEs in conservatorship, uh, what our housing finance markets look like, the good, the bad, the ugly from the past. Um, I think then we'll have to start diving into some questions about going forward issues like, you know, what is the expectation or uh, the will of Congress with respect to what the role of the GSEs should be going forward, uh, government guarantees, or even a government role at all. I think all those questions are on the table. We'll also have to figure out uh, how we're going to pay for the cleanup. Not only do we have a New set of things we need to do. We have an old set of problems we need to uh, patch together. Uh, a, a payment scheme for, and that that is not going to be easy because the larger the check there is, uh, the harder it is, or harder it may be to get a group of people to come together and a specific answer. Um, and we we do have to be mindful that all this work we're doing is going to be occurring at a point in time where the uh, housing market will probably still be somewhat soft. So we're going to need to uh, take stock of the, the ideas we're introducing and the impact they may have in the short term and, and then and, – Draw back or step back from that, and take a better uh, guess as to what they're going to mean for the long term, or conduct additional analysis to better understand what they're going to mean for the long term. But at a minimum, I I see us in a, uh, a area where we might be stuck with a transitional process before we get to anything where we can offer a uh, definitive set of ideas for uh, any ultimate uh, scheme for the housing finance markets in the United States. This is a pure guess on my part, but I assume, in light of the fact, the House Republicans will be very engaged in oversight of Dodd Frank. Um, I believe Chairman Johnson is going to have to at least turn to some parts of it, Um, you know, and that will be as regulations are being put through the process. I assume we'll keep a, a steady eye on what the regulators are up to as they go through their responsibilities uh, implementing each of the particular new provisions. They have uh, uh, things they need to get out or regs they need to get out on. Um, And I hope we'll also, at the same time, and to the extent things are rolled out, also take stock of the uh, economic consequences of the provisions as they are put in place. Um, so the the reg review will be as things are developed, but the economic review will be, you know, we'll hopefully be able to do a before and after type analysis on derivatives, securitization, consumer credit, the whole host of different provisions in the legislation. Uh, I think with unemployment where it's probably going to be for some time in the future and the economy re- remaining soft, if we ignore Positives or, I believe, more likely the negatives that are going to come from Dodd-Frank or, or manifest themselves in the economy via Dodd-Frank, we're asking for it. I, I think – and hopefully we will. We'll turn to look and, and take consideration of each of these things. Um as I noted before, the housing market remains soft, I think, in light of all that's gone on and somewhat in a surprising way with the foreclosure mess, with the robo-signers and things like that. It's very likely we'll continue to be engaged in following kind of the evolution of the cleanup of the, the housing mess and the foreclosure problems uh, and, and the subprime uh, issues uh, in general, um, and then, uh, maybe the final thing, and it'll make the Humphrey Hawkins meetings more interesting, in light of the Fed has taken on so much, and we've learned so much about what the Fed has done over the last couple of years i I believe we'll probably keep an eye on the Federal Reserve, its activities, the state of monetary policy the where q e two is, and those kinds of things um at a minimum that should at least get us to uh with hopefully no surprises, to around June and then we'll take uh, stock and you know, see where we go next thereafter. But that's that's my guess, at least. Nobody hold me to any of this. <laughs> well, thank you, Mark. Joy?
10: Um, well, I agree with everything Mark said, so is that enough?
9: <laughs> <laughs> Starting
0: out very bipartisan. Let's um, touch it.
10: Well, I'm, I'm going to, because I like feel like I've been around the block in financial services, I kind of come from a little bit different perspective when I look at what's going to happen going forward. Um, What I have had to do a lot in the past several months is look at where we've been this Congress, and I think it's no surprise we would all agree that, you know, we had a really aggressive um, legislative agenda in the 111th and a lot of punitive legislation um, where you've had members of Congress trying to make a point. You saw a lot of the regulatory agencies being beat about the head and shoulders for what they didn't do, and um, I think that that's going to um, and has already shown, at least with me and my experience with some of my clients, that um, these guys are um, really reticent and hesitant to go outside of the the lines when it comes to the rulemaking and when you're trying to talk to them about you know, these rules that they are undertaking now they are um, real quick to say, Congress didn't say we could do X. You might be right, but this is all we're able to do. If you want anything different, you got to go back to the drawing board. So, um, I've already had that experience um, on, a, on a couple of issues, and I think that that's that's probably um, going to continue. I think that you know it's obvious that the standards of regulation are changing now that we have this new bureau that's you know being gassed up by Elizabeth Warren, and um, when you see the uh, push towards regulation of how products are offered and terms, and, you know, that's a change in philosophy, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we had a we have a Democrat in the White House and we still currently until, you know, next year have um, Democratic control of both houses of Congress. But um, I think that that has given, obviously, the industry some heartburn and that they're going to go deeper into... Um, the mix, so to speak, and when you start talking about how things are offered and what you can say, um, that that's definitely given my clients some some heartburn. Um, I do think, though, in the House, with what we believe Spencer Backus will be the the chairman of the Financial Services Committee, and obviously Barney Frank will be the ranking member, and that'll give Barney a chance to be more reflective. and And um, there are people who believe that you know he's he's. Looking forward to that. Um, obviously, he's still going to be very vocal because that's just that—that's his personality. However, um, I think there are things that he's going to still be very energized about, and um, I think that there are things that he thinks happened in Dodd Frank that went a little further than um, they expected, um, and so there might not be as much. Even though I do expect that there's going to be a lot of gridlock, um, just given how things have progressed this this year um that that there will be some things where you might see a little chipping away but obviously you know nobody has said that they believe that there's going to be any full repeal or even repeal of any major portions of of Dodd-Frank but I think you might see some attempts to temper some things so that's just a little prediction on my part if I'm right maybe somebody will you know send me a bottle of champagne I don't know um and obviously my, my former boss, um, Tim Johnson, is expected to take over as chairs of the Senate Banking Committee. And for anyone who knows Tim Johnson, you know he is um, a, an extremely moderate Democrat from a blood-red state. And um, he is, uh, he's not a blowhard. He's not um, going to be you know wielding that gavel in a crazy manner. I think that he and um, Senator Shelby will get along just fine. Uh, he's known as being a consensus builder and a bridge builder. He prides himself on that and um, I think the most important thing to remember about Tim Johnson is he's not a politician. He is a legislator. He's very deliberate in how he approaches things and he will certainly um, be uh, keeping a very watchful eye over the rulemaking and the implementation of Dodd-Frank but I, I can't imagine that he's going to you know go in there and, and stir up the pot um, significantly at the outset and um, you know He's not afraid to take on tough issues, and certainly GSC reform is going to be one of those things. And so I think you'll also see him being very um, measured and deliberate in how he approaches that. But um, one thing I do know about Tim Johnson is he always hits a home run, so he's not going to do something um, just you know, knee-jerk or willy-nilly. He's definitely going to take his time and think it through, and it'll be done right, and he's certainly going to reach across the aisle and, and try to build as much consensus um with his republican counterparts as he possibly can. I don't know that that's really going to be the case in the house but um you know let's let's hope it used to be that financial services just by the nature of the beast it was you know a bipartisan approach and that kind of has deteriorated but um uh we can all say a little prayer. I'm not going to say anything else. I won't give my thoughts on the new bureau because I just can't say anything really very nice about what I think is <laughs> going to happen there. So you might be able to pull it out of me. But I'll let Bert give us the gospel.
0: Well, uh, thank you, Joy. And I, I haven't been able to find anybody saying anything nice about the new bureau either. So I'm, I'm still looking. But uh, we're going to hand this over to Bert, who I believe is a PowerPoint
8: presentation. Um, if someone can um, it's on, hmm? press one. Well, well, Mark is... um...
9: All
8: right, good. Um, Let me uh, just uh, get this up to uh, to full screen. Uh, First of all, while I'm doing that, let me give you my... uh, uh, statement uh, in, in terms of uh, what I'm uh, speaking here, uh, and that is that uh, everything you hear from me will represent official policy uh, statement uh, by Ely and Company, however off the cuff it uh, it, it may seem. So that's my uh, uh, disclaimer. Um, let me uh, uh, begin uh, by saying that, first of all, I'm going to get into some specifics about the uh, the bill. I don't think uh, Dodd-Frank will be repealed, much as I would like to, to see it. Uh, second of all, I think that what we will see, though, in the House uh, will be some uh, pre- bills coming out that will address what I consider to be some of the really, uh, shall we say, rough aspects uh, of the legislation. What happens over in the, House, in the Senate is, of course, another story. Uh, that's uh, often a graveyard for a lot of good um, legislative uh, initiatives, and I think that may be particularly true in the 112th Congress uh, with regard to uh, some much-needed uh, Dodd-Frank uh, fixes. Um, by the way, some of you may know that Dodd-Frank has taken on the nickname of Doofus, which is uh, one that, uh, that I, I find particularly uh, uh, amusing. But uh, I think what we will see in the 112th is, uh, uh, to some extent, a teen up of issues Uh, for the uh, next election and for the 113th Congress. So let me begin by talking about uh, our favorite bureau, the Bureau of Consumer uh, uh, Financial Protection. Now, again, to me, the ideal would be just to abolish it and uh, revert to uh, to the former system where safety and soundness regulators also do compliance regulation. I have a lot of concern, an enormous amount of concern, and I know others do, that Uh, the safety that this new bureau will not give proper account to safety and soundness considerations. There has to be a balancing between safety and soundness on the one hand, a consumer compliance on the other. There's no indication uh, that this new bureau will have the, uh, the the safety and soundness uh, concerns that it, it, that it should. So I think this is going to be an issue that's going to come up uh, uh, very quickly. Now, uh, if it remains, and sadly it probably will, I think that it's important to, uh, to improve its, uh, its political ac- accountability. First of all, I think the, the, the director should be uh, removable at will uh, by the president. The president can fire uh, cabinet secretaries. I see no reason why uh, the director is uh, uh, protected in, in that regard. It's very difficult as a practical matter to, uh, uh, to remove the, uh, uh, the director. It almost has to be some very serious uh, personal uh, of failing. The second thing that concerns me a lot, and again, I think this is particularly going to become an issue uh, uh, in the House Financial Services Committee, and that is the fact that the, the Bureau essentially, or the director of the Bureau, this one person, uh, uh, will be able to engage in very substantial rulemaking. Uh, there is some degree of a, of, of a veto if enough regulators uh, from the other agencies uh, object. But I think the important thing is that uh, there should be preapproval by some council of regulators of rules issued uh, by the Bureau. This essentially is how independent agencies work. You have a board, you have a commission, uh, the FDIC, the Federal Reserve and so forth. So there has to be some degree of uh, of, of, of collegiality uh, in getting rules adopted. It isn't uh, uh, just uh, one person. The third is uh, important change. It is to subject the uh, the bureau uh, to spe- the bureau spending uh, to the appropriations process instead of as the statute now reads, giving it a certain percentage, fixed percentage of uh, of fed uh, spending. It absolutely amazes me that the appropriators in in Congress allowed uh, the bureau to be set up the way it is from a spending uh, standpoint. Um, I'm also very troubled by uh, some of the, uh, the, the what we call the small business data uh, collection process where uh, banks and, and, and lenders are going to have to gather uh, specific data uh, with regard to the, uh, uh, who owns a, a small business and, uh, uh, and also the, uh, the census tract in which they're located. What concerns me about this provision is, first of all, the expense Uh, of this uh, data collection effort, but more importantly, where it could lead and what this data could provide the basis for, and quite frankly, I think it leads uh, to uh, uh, credit allocation with regard to lending to uh, uh, to the small businesses. and, um, and specifically to minority and, and, and women-owned businesses. So this is a, a you know, this is a classic Campbell's nose under the tent. Because once data is gathered, then it's going to be put to use, uh, and it's the uses of that data uh, that that concern me greatly. Um, there's also something in, in three different places in here, and very few people, I think, are aware of this. And that is the uh, uh, basically requirement that the bureau report possible tax law noncompliance this is those words are right out of the statute and let me just read it to you very quickly this shows up in three places the bureau shall provide the commissioner of internal revenue with any report of examination or related information identifying possible tax law noncompliance now what my concern is that the bureau will issue regulations which in effect will direct banks and other lenders including uh, uh, non-bank lenders to actually Positively, in a, in a positive way, collect information on possible tax compliance and forward it uh, to uh, to the IRS. That, in effect, banks and our lenders may be set up to become, in effect, if you will, snitches uh, on on behalf of uh, borrowers. And I uh, consider that to be uh, uh, be highly inappropriate. Um, there's also under what we call UDAP, uh, unfair, deceptive, and uh, and, and abusive uh, practices. Uh, uh, requirement that the uh, the Bureau uh, in, enforce against that. Now, as I understand it, uh, the, the terms uh, 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 that are that, uh, uh, unfair and deceptive are terms that have been de- defined uh, over the years by uh, uh, the Federal Trade Commission. But the word abusive, uh, particularly when you read it in the context of, of the statute, and by the way, this is Dodd-Frank in all its glory, uh, that uh, the word "abusive" is is not well uh, defined. Basically, it has almost no uh, a definition. is really very vague, and I think that this is a particularly troubling provision. Once the uh, the, the trial lawyers uh, uh, get ahead of it, so I think we have lots of problems. Uh, uh, with the bureau now, let me just turn to some other provisions in Dodd Frank, and then I'm going to talk just a little bit about housing finance reform. First of all, I think the so-called Volcker rule needs to be trimmed away back. This deals with uh, uh, proprietary trading activities uh, uh, by uh, banks, essentially the, the large uh, financial uh, firms. Uh, Number one, proprietary trading has not been demonstrated to have caused the financial crisis. The second thing is uh, serious problems as to what constitutes proprietary trading. This may be a rule that will help to drive financial activity outside the United States, which is not only not good for uh, the uh, uh, the U.S. economy, but actually, kind of potentially uh, increases the potential for systemic risk on a global uh, a global basis. Second of all, uh, I think there it's important to have uh, uh, modification of of derivatives uh, uh, regulation again, uh, particularly with regard to end users of, of derivatives. Um, Another area where there is a lot of concern, and that is the uh, uh, the lack of uh, judicial review in the res- in the resolution of troubled, systemically important financial firms. Of course, you have the threshold issue of what is a systemically important uh, financial firm. We heard a little bit about that before with regard to the insurance companies. Um, there's also a a, a provision uh, in in the bill uh, with regard uh, to uh, uh, each of the regulators. Uh, Uh, having to create an Office of Women and Minority Inclusion and to effectively then uh, uh, potentially uh, impose requirements with regard to women and minority inclusion on the entities that are regulated by those regulators. And again, I worry where this leads in terms of potential uh, uh, credit allocation. There's also a, a new Office of Financial Research uh, that has uh, uh, been uh, been set up that has an amazingly broad mandate in terms of the data that it can collect, including the finding data that, uh, that can be collected and without what I consider to be any uh, reasonable oversight. This, again, you collect data, then the question is to what purpose is it used. I can see... It. Now, the purpose of this office is to detect... Future crises. And I'm sure we all agree that regulators uh, are going to, with all this data, are in fact going to be able to see future crises as they're emerging and and head us off from that. And if you believe that, uh, I have some things I want to try and sell to you. But that is the purpose of the office. So I'm highly skeptical of what this Bureau is going to, uh, this new office is going to be able to do. But I am more concerned about uh, uh, what its data collection uh, activities can be. given the fact that it can even issue subpoenas to collect data, which again is a, a, a very great power that's been given to it that I should, think should be pulled away. And then, like the Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection, it really has been kind of exempted from the appropriations process, which I, I also find troubling. It can, in effect, uh, tap the, uh, the the Fed for whatever monies it, it wishes to, uh, to spend. Um, and then uh, under a couple of deposit insurance issues, we've had a, a, a major sh- change in the way deposit insurance assessments are levied, and really it's become, a, in effect, a, a bank liabilities tax that the FDIC will be collecting. Traditionally, uh, right from the beginning, the assessment base has been total domestic uh, uh, deposits, which bears some relationship to what is being protected in terms of deposits being protected. Uh, the, the new rule is... That it'll be a bank's assets on a global basis minus tangible equity capital, which essentially is all of a bank's liabilities, deposit or non-deposit, domestic or foreign uh, liabilities. Now, why was this change put in here? This is a very bold uh, attempt to shift uh, more of the uh, FDIC's uh, assessments or tax collection, if you will, to the larger banks. Uh, as if the larger banks were responsible for the FDIC's losses. In fact, the largest failed bank in recent years was $25 billion in assets, which is uh, uh, minuscule compared to the very largest banks out there. Under this new rule, the largest banks, the ones over $25 billion, will perhaps pay as much as two-thirds of deposit insurance assessments. But I believe these large banks are going to, uh, as they would with any tax, take steps to restructure themselves to bring down this tax. Tax liability and in so doing may drive banking business out of the United States and actually increase the potential for systemic uh, instability on a, on a global uh, basis. Another thing that they, they did, uh, at least for a couple of years, is. Uh, 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 reduce the likelihood that the uh, inspector generals will be doing what we call material loss reviews, which is kind of doing an autopsy on a uh, a, a failed bank. These autopsies are very important because they bring out and highlight what are uh, uh, failures in, in, in banking regulation. Now, just to wrap up on some comments on housing finance uh, reform, first of all, um, uh, I believe that uh, what we will uh, – see uh, coming out of the House Financial Services Committee and potentially out of the House is legislation that would uh, put in place an eventual liquidation of, of Fannie and Freddie uh, through a fo- phase down of the conforming mortgage limit also a phase down of their investment portfolios. I don't think that legislation will go any place in the Senate in the 112th uh, Congress uh, but I think again this is going to help to tee up uh, the issue for the 113th um, now one of the proposals that's it's on the table as a Fannie and Freddie reform is to uh, create a government backed mortgage securities insurance mechanism uh, sometimes isn't called the uh, MSIIC, which would have uh, a government backing as a way to uh, uh, replace Fannie and Freddie. The belief is that mortgage credit that is, home mortgage credit will not be made available in significant quantities in the United States unless there is explicit government uh, uh, backing. Uh, now, only do I not believe that, but I don't think the House Republicans are going to uh, go along with that. So this will be again part of the debate. Uh, one uh, potentially important uh, form uh, of new new form of housing finances in the country are so-called covered bonds. Uh, covered bonds have been around in Europe since 1769, about $3 trillion outstanding. Uh, more, They're being issued in more and more countries. Uh, Canadian banks, among others, are issued. Covered bonds are nothing more than on-balance sheet secured uh, financing, often used to, to finance long-term financial assets such as mortgages, uh, public infrastructure, uh, bar l- loans, and, and the like. And Scott Garrett from uh, New Jersey, who is likely to be the chairman of the House uh, Financial Services uh, Capital Market Subcommittee, uh, I got a bill, uh, a covered bond bill, out of the Financial Services Committee last year. I know he'll be coming back with it uh, this year. This is a reform that's not directly related to Fannie-Freddie uh, Fannie, reform. It's effectively putting another horse uh, into the housing finance uh, horse race, uh, but Covered bonds are are well-proven dem- well around the world, and we need to move forward with that. And I actually have some hope that that is one bill in the financial services area that will come out of uh, uh, the next uh, Congress. Um, I think it's also important, as we've seen in some of the deficit reduction proposals, to begin the phase out of the mortgage interest uh, deduction. Other countries have um, – uh, relatively high ownership rates without uh, this deduction, Canada being a very good example, I think it is at the, at the margin it helps this deduction helps to feed housing bubbles um, by subsidizing leverage and I think we can do without it um, also in switching back to uh, to the dodd frank act uh, there 's a provision in there what they call the ability to repay provision in within the mortgage reform title. That, to me, is suggestive of a suitability test for mortgage borrowers. I'm very concerned about what this ability to repay means. It, it, it strikes me as it potentially puts mortgage lenders in a position of having to make a judgment as to whether or not uh, a borrower could uh, repay a loan or circumstances in which they could not. And I fear that this opens the door to uh, the trial lawyers suing Uh, uh, mortgage lenders, kind of on an after-the-fact basis when uh, someone defaults on on a mortgage. And the argument will be, well, the lender shouldn't have made the loan in the first place. So we'll see how that plays out. But I'm very troubled by uh, by that uh, uh, provision. With that, I thank you, and I look forward to our discussion and your questions. Well, thank you, Bert. There was
0: certainly a lot to think about. Uh, Maybe the way I'd like to start off is uh, Bert certainly gave us a lot to think about, so I want to ask Mark and Joy whether they saw anything on Burt's list that they think has any possibility in the next Congress.
9: Um, Burt's list was incredibly close to the list we had during the Dodd-Frank bill of the things we did not like, so... I think we probably offered an amendment. We, we, we didn't. We had we to agree that we didn't share this in advance. No. Well, I don't know if you looked at the filed amendments list. Or not, <laughs> but we went after a lot of that stuff. Um, I'm not sure. I, I think the timing on Dodd-Frank will be the interesting issue as to when or how it's dealt with. Um, with unemployment near 10% and the economy as bad as it is, if, as the regs are put into effect, it is demonstrably, Remonstrable, that Dodd-Frank is causing economic problems. I don't think any politician wants to be the guy to stand up for stopping the economy or job growth. So that factor plus, like unlike, say, Sarbanes-Oxley, which was a very uh, kind of tight bill, Dodd-Frank has a lot of different spokes that come off of it if you can connect the economic consequences dots and then say you know what i'm leaving most of Dodd Frank is I, as is i think you can take shots at narrow parts of it much easier um and then the last thing i'll note is uh the the S&L crisis was much much smaller than this economically and as it hit on financial services and it took two bills and a complete uh capital accord to come through that well we're sort of on the way in Basel III, but we've only done this one bill here, and this one bill went all over the place. And, oh, by the way, we did it very quickly. I mean, there were maybe six versions of this bill, none of which ever saw a long time in the sun until we got to the final version. And as happens when you don't have a deal going to the Senate floor, the Senate floor is kind of a mess. So we had additional things come in there. So it's kind of a loosey goosey bill, and if the economy is indicating that it's causing more problems, and there are people who can articulate those problems and highlight the issues, I think anything that meets those tests is subject to uh, to revision. It's just it's not going to happen on day one because the the problems have to manifest themselves first. Um,
10: I agree with Mark in that. Um, I think that history has shown that Congress does not legislate well in a time of crisis, and this bill was just a kitchen sink of, um, I think, reaction to a lot of things. And, um, you know, (coughs) wouldn't it be great if we could chip away at Bert's list? I think that the pendulum is going to have to swing, um, and possibly due to, you know, the economy showing that, um, a lot of this stuff isn't working. Some of my concerns that I have with the new bureau is, um, well, not only <coughs> who's going to be running it, but um, just the fact that a lot of of uh, the um, issues and how and how the regulations are going to be written um, are, are are emotional in my mind. Um, where you're saying that, you know, consumers have to be protected, that they need to be protected. And a lot of the arguments that are made are made using minorities, people of color. Um, And now you take sympathetic groups of consumers to try to make your point. So you say the elderly need this or you shouldn't market this way to unsophisticated borrowers. And you need to be sensitive about how you talk to youth in your marketing. And there's just all of this stuff that um it's, it's troubling to me because if you think back to um, right after CRA was passed and you've got the banks being told you've got to make loans in certain neighborhoods and you can't redline anymore, and the banks are throwing up their hands and saying, we don't want to lend to those people, and we can't lend to those people, and they don't fit within the box. And then you've got Congress saying, fix your box and come up with better ways to make loans and look at different ways of underwriting and look at different um, credit criteria and take the utility bill instead of the credit card statement if they don't have it. So let's get innovative in how we're lending. And so they did that. And the pendulum swung, and now you've got some members of Congress who will admit behind closed doors maybe we pushed them too far. And so I think that we're going to get back into, if you don't fit in the box, we now are justified in not having to make, loans to you because you don't fit in the box and we've gotten our butts kicked up here and we can't do it anymore. And the people, the very people that, you know, Elizabeth Warren claims that she's trying to protect because they're too dumb to read the fine print are not going to be able to get the credit anyway. So um, that's, that's me on my soapbox about. Um.
9: If I can comment on a couple of things, I mean, during, we've done a whole bunch of consumer credit bills over the last couple of years. And during the process of one of them, um, we specifically – were we were told specifically by some of the consumer groups that there was too much credit available. And when they heard that certain lower income or minority groups would suffer, they said that's good because the way the system is now, there's too many tricks and traps and people get into too easy a situation. Well, getting in is too easy and then once they're in, they have all these problems. Um, that said, I think one of the things, and I, I wouldn't call it a you know a credit availability box or anything like that. I, I think a lot of work went in over the last thirty years of developing a consumer credit system that was based largely on a, a merit based system. I mean, the the credit reporting system gives lenders an opportunity to determine based on science, not based on race, sex, age. Whatever, based on science, about people's ability to repay. And unfortunately, I just heard today that the consumer groups are actually now upset that people – they're not going the way you're saying. They're getting upset that people with 500 and just above FICO scores can't get into housing now. So some of the groups are saying, you know, t- tighten it up. Yeah, and then now they're actually complaining and they're starting to push people, and there may be some lawsuits. So I'm not sure if we've learned all the lessons, but I think the most important lesson is and maybe it needs to start with uh, kids in school economics is an everyday thing and it's going to affect you the rest of your life you need to understand the choices you make are going to matter as far as whether you can get credit and what price you get credit at and you know if you've never heard of your FICO score it's going to dominate a lot of different things and you can be on the outside looking in if you don't mind your kind of financial P's and Q's and if we get away from that and get to a point where credit is allocated politically we'll have bubbles, we'll have problems and we'll be we will not have all the people who followed the rules in the past continue to follow the rules because we'll disincentivize following the rules. Well, and
8: if I could just add to that, I think this gets to what I see as a fundamental problem uh, with the bureau and its independence from safety and soundness regulation. Uh, the, the sense you have is that there is going to be a tendency to to push uh, for uh, uh, more credit uh, being uh, being granted. Uh, at least on the part of some, and that is going to uh, create safety and soundness problems for banks. So you end up with a, a situation where it's not only not good for uh, consumers, but it's not good for for banks in in the financial situation. Which is why I believe that that tension can best be addressed by putting uh, compliance and effectively the rulemaking back into the safety and soundness agencies.
0: Thank you. I've got we've got some time uh, right here in front.
11: hello uh mr. Oster- Merrill Smith independent mr. Osterley mentioned um, in more scrutiny perhaps of the Fed and QE two and some other things but this this question is addressed anybody can respond to this, but you did raise it um, there was as you know um, the audit the Fed provision did not make it in its full form by any means into the final legislation a much more watered down version did. Uh, uh, get enacted, and nevertheless, we have seen, I think, what might be described as a WikiLeaks dump of uh, Fed information as to who that bailout money went to, uh, some of which has been, uh, well, I think somewhat sensational and inappropriately so about um, uh, aiding foreign banks and cronyism, et cetera, et cetera. My question is, do you think this might provoke... um, uh, a re- looking at that again and maybe strengthening, uh, getting more to a fuller audit of what this enormously powerful institution uh, has been doing, that's a substantive question, of a process, a m- uh, monitoring question. Uh, uh, on a substantive uh, point, what, ab- what about... Um, Revisiting the Humphrey Hawkins uh, mandate of of the Fed, reining it back in. Whenever you raise uh, issues of federal Federal Reserve accountability, you always get this defense. Well, you don't want to politicize it. Heaven forbid that. And actually, I'm not asking that from that point of view. I'm asking, can we make it less political? Not by giving Congress more authority over monetary policy by any means, but by making it less political by actually reducing the power and the discretion of the Federal Reserve, like by reforming, repealing that version of Humphrey Hawkins. Um, if I could just jump in on it. I uh, uh, recently uh, uh,
8: was in a session uh, in which a, a senior Fed official was asked this very question about the dual, so-called dual mandate, and uh, uh, and this official, uh, you know, I thought uh, said that, you know, probably not a bad idea to do it, but uh, this official did not think it would really make that much of a difference uh, as to the actions that the Fed actually took, which essentially consists of uh, pegging the, uh, the short-term interest rate and then uh, more recently also engaging in, in QE2. And the more I thought about uh, what this official said um, – the, the the more I kind of come around to that uh, to that point of view that we the the dual mandate business I think is uh, is overemphasized uh, it's overemphasized as as a, as a problem or to put it another way things really wouldn't change that much if the uh, dual mandate was eliminated
9: and uh, the Fed was supposed to focus only on uh, inflation. Um, going back to the first part, I think Dodd Frank there was an attempt there to address some of the issues associated with the Fed's what are known as the Fed's bailout authorities or the programs it can take in crises the 13-3 authority so there's been some stuff done to tighten that up Uh, I I think the issue is on on Fed audits is is how far do the uh, supposed auditors want to go I think it'll be a long time and perhaps never will you'll have the ability to get into straight monetary policy interest rate decisions and things like that I mean, there are some people who want that, but I think more of the folks in Congress do not. But the programs, I mean, you mentioned the WikiLeaks uh, aspect of the the data dump they recently did. There has been an interest to get better understanding of the programs that they engaged in during the crisis, and I think that will continue. The issue is as we get further out from that, we'll know more. And then the hope is the next time around with and this is a hope. With the resolution authority in there, you'll have big firms resolved instead of propped up. And if there is a problem requiring Fed action, you'll have the ability to understand exactly and the Treasury being more involved. And there'll be a greater transparency about the measures they take under those circumstances. But I think the the ultimate issue on on auditing goes to how far you want to audit. And I don't see... There being a will to audit monetary policy-related items, just kind of these expenditure programs and things. And a lot of that has been dealt with. Um, You said it was scaled back, but you can get a lot more information now. It may take a little bit on the lag side, but uh, I think the next step is getting closer to monetary policy decision-making. And that I haven't seen so far that there's an interest across the board to engage in that kind of effort.
0: Right over here. Hello. Good afternoon for speaking. Uh, I'm a public policy intern on financial services. And I'm in particular um, interested in Fannie and Freddie reform. Um, Could you please address a little bit more what is likely to happen in the short and the long term? Mark, do you want to take a step at what you guys might
9: do? Uh, short term, I, I think there'll be, hopefully there'll be a very in-depth process to examine the current conditions of the uh, enterprises, to examine the 80-year history of how we got from the Depression to, to where we are now, and... Uh, uh, to examine the range of possibilities vis-a-vis what other countries do or what folks in other markets do and what uh, has been tried in some ways here and in, in, uh, not in a wide-scale market, but you know, some of the different things people have tried to look at here. But I'm not sure there's going to be a quick solution anytime soon. I think there, there needs to be a lot of work uh, prior to any action being taken. Um, and by a lot of work, I mean – at least a few years. Um, So there there needs to be a lot of digging first uh, so that we understand exactly what we did wrong, maybe get some senses to the things we did right, uh, and maybe a consensus could emerge about expectations regarding what the housing finance markets need to look like uh, or what people will accept in the housing finance markets.
8: If I could uh, just add to that, I think one of the real challenges uh, in the short term is a lack of consensus that, uh what should be done. In that regard, it's going to be very interesting to see uh, what proposal the administration puts on the table uh, in the next month or two. Of course, they were supposed to put a proposal on the table at the beginning, beginning of this year and, uh, and, and did not. And I wouldn't be surprised if the administration has a, has a pretty, uh, pretty vague proposal, maybe in terms of goals, and uh, throws it back to Congress. So you guys come up with uh, uh, the, uh, the, the the fix. So it's a it's a difficult issue to deal with. It's even harder to deal with it while we're still working through the housing finance uh, mess. And then of course we have the the, uh, uh, the uh, partisan division between the the House and Senate. So what I'm hoping is that we will uh, again see debate on it. Uh, in the next Congress, I do expect, as I said before, uh, that the House will uh, report a bill out and, and send it to the Senate that would have some kind of Fannie uh, Freddie uh, reform proposals in it, uh, quite possibly along the lines of what uh, Jeb Henterling, uh proposed. Uh, and, um, but then again, I don't think uh, it'll go anywhere uh, in the Senate, and I don't believe Congress can come up with a bill that the President will sign.
0: Uh, right back here in the. Yeah.
3: Me. Yeah. Thanks.
2: Thank you. Sorry. Um, my name is Gabriela Trees of the German Embassy, and
9: I would like to ask Mr. Österle and Ms. Sheffield, in particular, um,
2: to what extent they think the question of. The funding of the federal of the, the regulatory agencies um, will be an issue in the next Congress and I'm not so much thinking of uh, consumer protection but rather um, I'm thinking of the other end derivatives for example investor protection and for example I just read that the SEC um, announced
9: they would have to postpone certain programs due to a lack of funding thank you uh, the the c f t c it's been proposed to plus up the c f t c which would do some aspect of the derivatives the new derivatives oversight responsibilities a uh, significant amount in the uh i guess the proposed c r so there's some things for them um you know the s e c has asked for in the past and has gotten increases in their funding uh a number of times i think an issue there though is Look what they've done with it. You know, we're almost on the two-year anniversary of Bernie Madoff. More funding hasn't always gotten us better results. Uh, And, you know, there's going to be an issue with all the regulators. I mean, the Fed is self-funded and the OCC has funded from fees. But with all the regulators, if, uh, you know, we're just throwing money at them and we're continuing to get the same results we've gotten, uh, that's a problem. And I think there's a real issue that hasn't been addressed all that much in the past year. I mean, a lot of people talked about the – nefarious activity of lobbyists and stuff. But lobbyists aren't the only people with self-interest in this town that may not coincide with the public interest. A lot of Dodd-Frank was directly written by the folks at the agencies who had responsibilities. I mean, the Fed has the ability to go after abusive mortgage lending practices right now, and they've had it for more than 10 years. What do they do? I mean, nothing. And Where's the questioning about that? I mean, the Fed has a lot of systemic oversight responsibilities, and they didn't use those real well, But and they explained to us they don't have the capability to engage in a lot of systemic oversight yet now, but everybody's running around talking about how we are going to solve our systemic problems, not with money, not without a lot of work. The SEC has a lot of responsibilities, again, There were failures, and it would have been nice if we had had a more thorough process to better understand the nature of the failures at the regulators, the folks who work for us. Again, a lot of bad things happen, but a lot of those bad things were perpetrated by people who were not working for the federal government. There have been very few people held to account who work for the taxpayer running up to this. And I I can think of a couple people who got fired at the SEC. I can think of a lot of people who got big promotions, who had direct responsibility over, say, the largest holding companies in the world that were doing some interesting things that led to some serious problems. I know one in particular got a new job and got to move and got a lot more power and has not been held to account. I mean, that's a major issue here. Who has been held to account? What have the regulators learned about the things they did right and the things they did wrong? Well, I hope, but it wasn't discussed in the past. That's crazy, but that's the way it was.
0: Now, Mark, in fairness, I believe the uh, presidency of the New York Fed actually pays more than a cabinet-secretary position, so at least somebody <laughs> had to take a pay cut. Uh, Joy, do you have anything to add to the appropriations question? Uh, no,
2: I'm going to let that
10: sit right where it is.
0: Okay. <laughs> uh, I think we had a, a question. Uh, Anne?
2: Thanks very much. One of the things that was apparent with the last debacle was lack of transparency, lack of information about all the individual uh, investments and what backed them up and what the underlying characteristics were. One, it's pretty clear now that probably a year from now we're going to be in the middle of a municipal bond crisis. Oh, yeah. And I I wondered, is there going to be any focus on... Getting municipalities' accounting standards aligned, so and then also all the underlying uh, information with regard to the financial condition made available publicly.
9: That's a question for Mark, I think. <laughs> you know, I, I I guess you can't say something that uh, you're already talking about is going to be the surprise issue of the coming year. As I noted before, there's always a surprise issue. The municipal problems are maybe the surprise issue we're now sort of expecting. So I I believe we have some responsibilities to look at it and I hope – I mean there were some things that were in Dodd-Frank that are intended to address it. I hope we engage some more and get a much better sense because uh, you're right. I mean there are some serious issues there. And uh, there have been problems in a bunch of different states. Alabama's had some problems. Um, I, I think there will be more, and it's worth taking the time maybe before – well, I don't know. Maybe a lot of the stuff's already baked in the cake, so we can't really say it's before, but before the actual breakdown. Um, and maybe we can help deal with some of the problems. But it's it merits consideration indeed. Um, if I could just add that, I think there are really two different problems.
8: Uh, uh, one is the you know, the relatively short-term cyclical problem of uh, the current uh, uh, budget deficits in um, uh, these states, but there's also, of course, the, the, the much longer-term and I think very serious problem, that it has to do with government pensions, uh, state and local. And, of course, California has a huge problem in that regard. I was very intrigued by a proposal I saw just in the last day or two that um, uh, states and municipalities might be denied uh, the ability to issue uh, tax-exempt uh, bonds uh, on a going-forward basis until such time as they uh, more fully disclose what their uh, pension liabilities were.
0: I think we've got time for one last quick question right here. That microphone.
2: Hello. uh, Deborah Cayetani with Democracy Work. I was wondering, since as you know, the environment or the the galaxy of a stock trader or the energy trader or bond trader is very different, as you can appreciate, from the legislators' uh, universe and the the homeowners' universe. Uh, Could you each define what the word economy means to you when you say it's the economy, it's economy. Because sometimes I think it's, it's one business talking about the economy and everybody ta- using the same language. There's very different.
8: Who wants to go for? Uh, uh, to me, the economy is the is is the global sphere of of, of all forms of economic activity, uh, manufacturing, uh, services, government, and I might add, bond trading, and uh, uh, so to me it in, in encompasses uh, uh, everything. There are obviously uh, uh, differences of opinion about uh, the degree to which we ought to have certain activities. Uh, uh, and, and, and the magnitude of certain activities uh, in the economy, and of course, uh, uh, bond and securities trading, is is one of those. But again, they are an, uh, uh, an important
9: part of the uh, the economy. I, I can't really define it, but I think, folks. Take steps to do – maybe this is for analytical purposes – to break things down to micro levels or what have you. But at the end of the day, the thing that we need to be mindful of and everybody needs to be mindful of is the incredible amount of interrelationship between all the range of different activities. I mean folks sometimes think certain things are just speculative and in fact in the end of the day they could help you know, create jobs at a John Deere plant somewhere in Iowa – uh, but I, I'm I'm not an economist, so I'm not going to provide a definition, but I do think we need to be mindful of the interrelationship, and we need to help our regulators be mindful of the range of interrelationships and give them direct and achievable tasks, not things like vague pronouncements go out and deal with systemic risk. God bless you. Good luck. I mean, we we need to hold people accountable, but we need to give them... Uh, the responsibilities that are actually the kind of things they can be held accountable for. So, I, and that that cuts in the other way. Of what I was saying about the regulators before. I mean, you don't hold them accountable for vague notions. You ask that they do specific things, and then Congress needs to stay engaged to oversee that they do those things. We've asked them to do well. Joy, you have anything to add? Hey.
10: Yeah, I didn't do so well in economics and that, well, I was an English major. So, um I can I can I can say that I agree um about the the personal responsibility aspect and I do firmly believe that, you know, everything is is interconnected and and related and it really bothers me when people try to give you or point to one place that causes economic crisis and and you can't point to you can't point to one place, I think that there was responsibility up and down the spectrum from the basic consumer who was out there getting the mortgages to you know all the way up the food chain. I mean there are a lot of people that as you know Mark alluded to that have not been held responsible and there are lots of groups of of um, businesses and people who have, have seems like purposely been left out of this debate in terms of what their level of of uh, responsibility was in terms of um, helping to pile on to to everything that you know created this meltdown and um, so i I do agree that you know going forward there de- definitely needs to be some accountability, and I think some people have to make some tough decisions about who they 're going to start calling on the carpet about it but in terms of you know i, I can 't define economy either and and it 's interesting just to even talk to people from other countries and overseas and friends of mine who are you know really pissed off at what's happening here and and claiming and and are convinced that it's affecting you know the poorest person in their country as well as to, in terms of what's happened here in the United States so um you know it, I think it starts at the top and it runs to the bottom and it goes right back up in terms of how it, how we're all impacted <laughs>
0: Well, thank you. I appreciate that, and I, I want to thank all of our speakers and thank our speakers in the first panel as well. And thank you as the audience. Uh, in invite you to join us upstairs in the Winter Garden for a reception. Thank you.